0: Good evening. My name is Andrew Norman, and I am the director of the Composer Fellowship Program here at the LA Phil, which is a program for high school composers. A few of whom I see in the audience. Raise your hand if you're in the Composer Fellowship Program. Awesome, we love you. Um, yes, and I. Um, had the privilege of helping to organize and curate this concert, which is the first green umbrella concert of the LA Phil's centennial season. So um, it was very exciting. And uh, what we decided to do was to commission six brand new pieces. It's my favorite kind of program, because um, I actually have no idea what these composers are going to make. And therefore, the burden is entirely off me to make a program that makes sense. So, uh, basically, uh, a year or more ago, we selected six composers, four of whom are, are with us here, um, and let them run free with their imaginations to figure out where they would go with this concert and, and this music. Um, I should also point out that one, five of, of the world premieres you'll hear tonight are happening in the hall during the concert. The sixth is actually an installation piece, which is currently going on right now. So if you find this talk boring, you can leave and go up to the garden level and around the back to the amphitheater, the outdoor amphitheater, where Ellen Reed's sound installation is happening between now and 8 o'clock, and also at the intermission. So please do not miss that. Um, She described it a little bit to me. It's a meditation on time. Uh, There's some texts taken from the dictionary definition of time, and uh, uh, it should be incredible. So that is happening out there. Um, She is currently up there, which is why she couldn't join us here. So for the composers, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm wondering if you could each say your name, say maybe just a few biographical ideas, Pieces of information, a little bit about your musical journey, and maybe a little bit about your general practice as a as a
1: as a composer.
0: Let's start with you, Daniel.
1: All right. Hi, I'm Daniel Alice. Um, I am right now studying music composition at USC. Um, I used to be in the CFP as well, so um, exciting to be back and working here. Um, And in terms of my musical practice, right now I'm writing mainly instrumental music and electronic music, um, and working in various ways with sound um, that may not be exactly related to the classical music tradition, but finding ways to um, bring in a lot of different influences than just classical music, um, noise music or um, trance music into the classical field. So that's kind of what I've been working in recently. Awesome.
2: Hi, I'm Carolyn Chen. Um, I did school at Stanford and UC San Diego and I live in Eagle Rock and I make music for instruments and also for objects and people moving around spaces. Um, I've done music in the supermarket and on the sidewalk and um, things with marbles recently. Yeah. All right.
3: Hi, um, I'm Tina Tallon. I am currently a graduate student at UC San Diego. Um, we have good representation up here right now. Um, although I'm currently living in Boston uh, and teaching there. Um, and my music is, it started out, a lot, of, a lot of it was an attempt to reconcile my background actually as an engineer with my life as an artist. My undergraduate degree is actually in biological engineering. Um, and so natural processes have always been a huge part of the inspiration for many of my pieces. Um, But lately I've been kind of using that as a diving point to explore notions of trauma, um, notions of the voice and the way that the voice relates to the body and embodied cognition of sound. Um, And so that's where a lot of my practice is centered at the moment. Which leads to, yeah, a lot of other sounds that you might not typically (laughs) expect to occur in a concert hall necessarily. Um, But I feel like they're very descriptive of a lot of things that are kind of deep within us.
0: Thank you.
4: Hello, I'm Natasha Deals. I'm a uh, performing and composing musician. I live in San Diego right now. Um, I'm at UCSD also. Uh, my practice right now revolves around collaboration with other musicians and artists and crane operators and children and all sorts of different people. Um, I really think collaboration has like a very special power to it, and so I'm really interested in creating most of my work with other people. Uh, I've also been confronting, over the last, oh, I don't know, two years and a month, approximately, been really confronting the question of why art matters, and so that's something that I confront with all of my work right now.
0: All right, thank you. Um, I'm wondering, Wondering if um, perhaps each one of you could just say now a few words more specifically about um, the piece you wrote for this evening's concert and perhaps the process you undertook over the last however many months um, in writing it and kind of give us a picture of your thought process and what led to what we're about to experience tonight. Okay. Should we go backward?
4: Okay. Um, so, In order to talk about this piece, I'd like to talk about a couple of other pieces I did recently. Um, I recently did a house installation. Uh, It was a performed installation where I took over a Dukal mansion in Germany. And I turned it into a kind of haunted house, but the opposite of a haunted house. So instead of going through the house and being scared by what you were confronted with, you would go through the house and feel really good and have a really intimate experience with a total stranger. Um, and I did this in collaboration with a really great musician, Sam Scranton. And our intention with that piece was to create really intimate personal experiences um, because it was an individual walkthrough of this house. And that kind of experience is what I was also trying to capture with this piece, Laughing to Forget. Um, this piece that I wrote for the, for the LA Phil was um, a piece about how you forget how to laugh sometimes. And sometimes you really need to have uh, you need to have help from a whole host of other people to remember how to laugh, to learn how to laugh again, and then to laugh in order to forget um, situations that maybe are harmful to you, um, like political situations, for example. Um, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I did this through, um, as I do in most of my music, I do this through interrupting the natural flow of music with body choreography, uh, with Tricks of lighting uh, with words, unexpected text. Um, yeah, that's kind of a wrap up.
0: I have to say that, that one of the pieces that I first knew of your work was the string quartet. Uh, what is it called?
4: Nightmare for Jack.
0: A Nightmare ballet. for Jack, for the Jack Quartet, in which this idea of utilizing the entire body of the player for um, expressive reasons it had a huge impact on me. Um, and I was so inspired to see it. So um, I, when I opened the score uh, for this piece, I was delighted and thrilled uh, just with the notational language and how much um, it communicated of this sense of, of joy, really. Um, yeah, I was, I'm so so excited to hear it.
4: If I could just say one more quick thing yeah? about that. I don't want to hog, hog the stage or anything, but um, something that I really think is very special about musicians is that we... Um, We have very awkward bodies, and so when we move them in choreographed ways, it's really interesting and beautiful. And that's, that's kind of what the Nightmare for Jack piece was all about, was taking these little movements that musicians do and nobody really pays attention to, and creating a sort of counterpoint with them.
0: Yes, it was beautiful. All right, Tina, will you tell us a little bit about your piece?
4: So I
3: guess to segue from that notion of joy that you just mentioned, my piece is in some ways the antithesis of that. Um, <laughs> if you're looking for something inspiring and uplifting, I'll just say my piece may not be <laughs> the thing you're looking for. Um, but given that, you know, I've been exploring notions of how, as artists, we relate to trauma, how we um, describe and translate feelings into sound, um, that's basically the thrust and that's the underpinning of this piece. Um, and so, Lately, of course, we've been dealing with a lot of issues surrounding the notions of silence and injustice um, and how power dynamics and structural organiz- just structural <laughs> problems with many of these systems serve to um, serve to silence people who may not be uh, represented in the majority um, in various situations. And so um, yeah, this piece is a way to express what it feels like to be trapped underneath of that kind of surface, that seething surface of silence, um, trying to puncture through it in various ways, um, trying to deform it and break out of it. And So there are lots of globular textures and there's a lot of vocal work. That's also, as I said, part of my research. I'm interested in the way that instruments can imitate vocal sounds. Um, And so I use a lot of technology to help facilitate that. So I have um, various vocal samples, things that people recorded for me, um, specifically for this presentation or for this performance today, um, where they share their stories. And so it may not be totally intelligible all the time, just the way that many of us trying to speak are not totally, we're not able to be intelligible based upon the way that systems serve to silence us. So if you can't always hear everything, it's more of an invitation to listen and to do more to make it a thing that can be listened to. So, I guess
2: that's
3: (laughs) the inspiration for the piece there.
0: Okay.
2: Um, So, there's a book by Rebecca Solnit called The Faraway Nearby, um, and it's a collection of essays. Some of them are personal, and some of them are more maybe nonfiction, where she talks about history or um, scientific discoveries. Um, But the the kind of general theme running through the book is this idea, of, it sort of starts from her recounting her experience with her own mother's memory loss, um, toward the end of her life and um, how that changes their relationship, and not always for the worse um, how it kind of uncovers, it, it allows her to see her mother in a different way um, and to kind of rethink this relationship that was at points difficult in her life um, but. Throughout the whole book, um, there's a footnote, a running footnote that lasts the entire length of the book about uh, moths that drink the tears of sleeping birds. Um, and that image was kind of the catalyst, I think, or the, the, my starting point for the piece. Um, the idea of kind of visiting something, visiting somebody when they're not awake. Um, and I guess she talks a lot about dreaming and the, the idea of drinking is both like giving and taking away um, and she talks about it, it sort of flows very fluidly between scientific um, references and, and explanation and thinking through um, like Greek myths about um, Cupid and Psyche and how he would visit her when she was uh, at you know, under the cover of sleep And um, I think I was thinking a lot about the way that she writes, um, in that the subject is always constantly changing or evolving, and in a way also disappearing at the same time. So I guess the way that that comes through the piece would be... I think there there are a lot of in-between sounds, um, and in general the feeling or the atmosphere of the thing is is sort of reaching for that moment like when you've woken up but you're not fully awake or maybe at the other end when you you haven't quite fallen asleep yet um, and everything is a little bit cobwebby um, and maybe like at the end of your life how things can wrap around toward the beginning and becoming older can also be a way of becoming younger Um, so thinking about time as something kind of fluid and identity as something always shifting and changing. Um.
0: Beautiful. All right, Daniel. Cool, yeah.
1: Um, I feel like what's cool about even hearing everyone speak is that we get to speak to you about what we think is worth um, time, worth your time. And I think a, a lot of what we do as composers is think about what is a worthy experience in time. Um, and using sound, and um, I feel like that's something that's really special about um, this period of time in composition is that we, I think we all come from very separate places, but we have these things that are really important to us and we'd like to share with you. Um, and for me, with this piece that um, I'm sharing, I, I felt like I wanted to shape this time around an idea that I've been trying to um, master or, or sort of uh, become better at, which is um, this practice of mindfulness and meditation. Um, and just having like a, a centeredness to the way that you live your life um, and, and kind of knowing, you know, why you're doing what you're doing and, and also um, not filling your life with things for the sake of filling them. Um, and I think often, or I shouldn't say often, but I found there's a lot of music that seems to fill itself up with a lot of things um, that might not mean a lot, you know. And I feel like uh, I feel like a lot of us as composers now are thinking, really, what what do we want to put into the world and these deeper meanings about what the sounds mean, you know? And I think each one of us has sort of shared that in a different way. But uh, you know, in my piece, you're not going to hear a lot of sounds or uh, you're not going to hear a lot of notes. Um, but the goal of it is to kind of try and experience each sound as its own thing and to appreciate it w- for what it is. In the program note I talk about, a lot of them are very unstable, and um, the, the way they're performed is actually kind of hard to do, even though it sounds like it's just one note or it's just um, very quiet sounds. They're very hard to keep steady. So I think the goal with the sounds is to find um, beauty in the inconsistency of them and to find intrigue whether you feel like a bunch is happening or not and I think that's related to just to the way that we live now I mean we're all on the thing in our pockets all the time you know and it's like so quick um, we have a lot at our fingertips and yet I wonder if um, we're really uh, enjoying and appreciating things um, for what they are so that's kind of where I'm coming from with this and I just think it's a cool time right now because a lot of people are asking these questions of what, what are we putting out into the world of music and um, what's, worth, what's worth putting out there.
0: Absolutely. Um, I loved what you said, Natasha, earlier of really thinking about why Why we're making art. And if, if there's any common thread here, it's a, it, what I see is a deep thoughtfulness about why we make now. Um, do any of you want to talk further on, the, on this subject of like it's something that's been imp- important and on the f- forefront of my mind is how, how on earth do I make anything when um, the world is filled with so many things which um, it's, it's almost like so much chaos that I can't I can't quite process how I feel about it and um, so many things that, that make me both incredibly angry and incredibly sad and um, I'm I'm curious to hear from other artists about what that process is like, and if um, to what extent um, your work has changed in the last couple of years or not.
4: May I? Um, well, I was just talking to a good friend of mine um, who's also a great artist, Zach Moore, uh, and I was talking to him about this very question, and he said this really beautiful thing that's just been resonating in my mind. He was, he was like on a break on his, from his job and sitting in the cafeteria, you know, eating lunch, and Jurassic Park was on the TV. And everybody knows that Jurassic Park is a ridiculous, very unlike, like unlikely story, totally impossible story, like a dinosaur amusement park. I mean, that's crazy, right? It doesn't make any sense. Um, And when you're watching a movie like that, you know, you can zoom in as far as you want. You can zoom in to the level of the little color particles flying around and creating order out of each other. And, you know, the sound, you can zoom in all the way and it's just frequencies that that are combining together to create complex sounds that are words and music and all this other stuff. And beyond that, there's nothing. And you know that there's a finite moment where there's nothing at the end of that zoom in period and in life we just never are able to do that we can't zoom in that far there's always something else and so when we're when we're creating a piece of art we're creating a finite experience of a human experience or reality of human reality that we can actually understand and comprehend on some level even if it's not even if it's totally fantastical and makes no sense but it actually does make sense because it's all about creating connections between things that we can't understand so
0: it's beautiful.
1: Yeah, and I think what's cool about that too is that I don't mean to speak for all of us necessarily, but I think a lot of times we write music and we want to create that experience, but we, and we have an idea of what for us it means, um, but we're leaving it open in a way for people to, or at least I feel like I am, to, to have this experience with themselves. And um, you might think the complete opposite of what I said earlier about my piece, and yet, you know, we all see these different particles and we make a different picture with them. And uh, I think it's exciting as a composer just to sort of create this constellation. And um, there's like some, some order to the constellation. So we, that's what we offer you is like the, the image. But that underlying thing, that thing you're, you can't zoom into, is really a personal thing that each one of us is um, having to discover every time we experience a piece of art.
3: I think, oh, I think in some ways that process of zooming in to a certain extent can be a place of refuge sometimes. I know for some of us it's very difficult to actually face the big picture. It's difficult to break that down into digestible chunks. And so being able to zoom in below that level and, and focus on something that's a little bit more manageable um, and that's a little bit more able to be controlled can sometimes be very therapeutic. Um, I know... For me, for instance, you know, it, it was definitely difficult to wake up every day and work on this piece. It's an act of re-traumatization, in a way, um, and so to make that more manageable, because there are some days where you just don't have the emotional strength to actually sit and look at this thing and say, all right, I'm going to make something happen. I'm going to somehow rise above this. Um, being able to break it down into small chunks, say, all right, I'm going to sit here with a block of styrofoam. Yes, there is styrofoam <laughs> in my piece. I'm going to sit here with a block of styrofoam and I'm just going to listen to the, the variety of sounds that I can get out of this. What is the story here? What is the story of this block of styrofoam that has not been told? right? And I think in a way, it's a way to build empathy, even though this is <laughs> an inanimate object. It's a piece of styrofoam, right? But we tend to think about that type of sound in one way and we don't necessarily listen in for the variety um, and the very rich um, multiplicity of sounds available there. So that's kind of how I was able to get through this process.
2: Um. I think that the act of listening in itself is a way of practicing getting at empathy. Um, And I just wanted to i agree with everything you've all said. I wanted to talk about the the idea of changing and how your views have changed in disaster, in the phase of disaster. I think when I was younger, I really wanted to find a way for music to save the world, um, and I didn't <laughs> um, but I tried really hard um but it was just to say i mean i I work in mostly classical music you know i I have this many friends who do this this kind of thing, um, so it's a small world um, but i I do think that. I guess for me, it's not always an act. It doesn't feel like necessarily an act of creation out of nowhere. Um, I think it's it's an opportunity to have time to investigate something and and to discover something about that object of investigation. So starting with a picture or an image or a political situation in mind. Um, but having time to work work it out from one specific angle in a, in a very like limited format, but to have the time to sort of test it out and see what relationships would sound like or between people or between instruments and how they would work together, um, and it I don't think it concretely changes anything, um, but the opportunity to do that is so valuable, and when when you're given this gift of attention, I think it sort of changes the spiritual quality of it also. I mean, I think just it's a, real, it's a really valuable thing to have all these people in one room being quiet together. It doesn't happen that often, um, and I think there's a lot of possibility in that, um, a lot of possibility for imagination, for stirring that. Um, and for thinking about how small things in the world might be different.
0: Thank you. Um, I have just one, one more question for you all, which is um, about the fact that we are here in Disney Hall uh, with musicians of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, one of the premier classical music institutions of America. and. Uh, what does that mean, if anything, in terms of the process of how you wrote, what you wrote tonight? And was it far away from, from your normal practice? Um, was it close in? Was it, um, is this, yeah, how, how does this sense, if at all, of, of an, working within a large institution affect how you work? And also the fact that. Um, these musicians are, are some of the, the best at what they do in the world but also the, the fact that the process of making these pieces is very very quick we started over the weekend, we made them tonight so how does that uh, impact how you thought about the piece and um, what you decided t- to make for all of us?
3: I can start. <laughs> okay. um, so I think first of all when we think about the context of classical music there are hundreds of years right, of, of repertoire that has been performed in this hall, um, but there's a lot that we haven't heard. So again, this idea of silence, who are we not hearing from? And I think that's one of the things that the LA Philharmonic as an organization does very well, um, especially within the past two years in terms of championing voices who have not been represented historically. Um, so that's kind of one aspect that was very near and dear to my heart to have this opportunity um, to kind of break with the past. That's not to say that I don't respect the hundreds of years of tradition that you know that I am beholden to. Um, but I think that's very exciting that we're, we're hearing new voices. Um, and so that was something that was key um, in for me choosing the subject matter of what I felt I needed to address with my piece. Um, so that's kind of at the heart of it. And then there are some auxiliary considerations as well um, that were important to me. And the, that's nothing but personal trivia, um, but I actually had a piece premiered on the National Composer Institute program two years ago um, with Andrew and uh, Wild Up was the ensemble in residence for that. Um, And on that piece, that was the first time I experimented with styrofoam on the stage of Walt Disney Concert Hall. (laughs) Um, And so I thought I would go whole hog with it this time. Um, and really get in there uh, and explore that sound more. I can see people are already starting to cringe. Um, (laughs) I'm like, hashtag sorry, not sorry. Um, But but the other other part of this, I think, is that when you take a classical musician who's at the top of their game and they've practiced for years and decades, really, to become the best at their instrument, and then you hand them a piece of styrofoam, right? The playing field is leveled. I had the harpist today, the harpist played with a Superball mallet at one point to kind of create these whale-like sounds that emanate forth. And she said, you know, I think I might be the world's expert on Superball mallet on the harp. This is what I should have written my dissertation on. Um, And so, yes, there's a subversive quality in that, but I think it's also great to be able to explore something new with people who are very detail-oriented and extreme professionals, so they are so sensitive to sound. Um, And so it's great to say, all right, what kind of sounds can we get out of this piece of styrofoam? And they did an amazing job. Um, And I think we have a lot of great stuff to work with. Um, So that's a real treat and and a real pleasure.
1: I can share, too. I'm into styrofoam, so (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Um, But I think uh, related to the question, too, of just um, what you do normally or what happens? What's your practice like? For the last two years, probably, I've really been doing more um, of the collaborative work that Natasha was talking about earlier of like one-on-one pieces. Like I write a piece for a person or I write um, for a small group of people. Um, and I feel like those have been really powerful experiences just because you, you build a piece with somebody and it's... Um, yeah, I just I think I resonate with what you were saying of just how you you get to know a person and this sort of again empathy starts building and you can create something that's really personal for that um player. In this instance, you know, we we know of the LA Phil, but you know, we don't know the personalities of each person in the room. And so you are writing in I thought I felt like a little bit of a self-conscious way, because you wanna you wanna meet them where they're at and you want you know we know that they're great musicians and at the same time maybe we want to say something that they're not used to doing and um, just finding the balance between being respectful to that but then also um, not compromising in what you want to say and what is worth it to you to write. Um, So for this piece I felt like I, I tried to to give uh, as much as I could to the people who are playing it, but there's a point at which the piece starts to tell you what it needs. Like, if it is this quiet, silent piece, then there's not going to be a lot of notes. And even though it's a solo, it's not going to be virtuosic. And um, there's a different type of virtuosity, maybe, that needs to happen when you're holding a note for four minutes, you know? And that's a different physicality to the playing that is virtuosic, but it's not Uh, the typical way you'd write, so.
4: Um,
2: Well, I guess building off of what Daniel and Natasha have said about collaboration, um, I I totally agree. And I more frequently work with people that I know or have met before, um, so there's a little bit more time for a conversation. But I, I guess I do think of every score as A kind of conversation um, and it's it's like a way of asking for something (laughs) Um, and you know I guess if I'm on the phone with my mom I sound different than if I'm calling a friend Um, so I I do feel like there's rooms for that there's room in my aesthetic for different kinds of language um, and like different vocabulary and so I happen to love like really old Music. I mean, I love Bruckner and Schubert and Brahms and I, I played in youth symphony, so I, I think of this music as also being in conversation with all those people, in addition to, I mean, there's no literal styrofoam in my case, <laughs> but, but I like to think that it could be uh, like, in conversation um, with these things, so I'd, I'd say, yeah, I, I think the challenge for me personally was really in thinking about this idea of virtuosity um, which a lot of my music um, it, it is not that virtuosic. Um, so, and since it was specifically supposed to be a concerto that was like really a, st- a stretch, that um, I had to kind of think about what, what the idea of um, a spotlight would be and for, for an instrument, and how they would relate to a group uh, Yeah, what, what the idea of a spotlight would be like now. Uh, yeah, so I totally agree with
4: um, Carolyn's concept of a conversation. Also, as I mentioned, I usually work in collaboration. Um, probably most of my artistic output is with uh, my group called Ensemble Pamplimus, which is a composer performer collective, but we're also like family. We've been together for 12 years now. Um, pretty. Pretty close group of people, um, so this was a different experience for me. I mean, I've written for other ensembles as well, uh, but I have to say that whenever I'm writing for another ensemble or for um, the LA Philharmonic, I I feel like there's one piece I can write. It's I don't I don't feel like I have a a choice. <laughs> um, there's there's one thing that that comes out, and that's that's what that's what happens for me. Um, but I have to say that what I was especially excited about with this particular experience is that I don't know almost any of you and I'm really excited to meet you and talk to you and tell you about my dearest collaborators and my friends and hopefully you'll go like, check out their music and fall in love with them the way that I have and that's the thing that I was really excited about for this experience.
0: And I have to say that we are excited at the Philharmonic to get to introduce all of you to this audience as uh, the die-hard new music fans of LA. And um, we are absolutely thrilled at what you've created for the LA Phil, and we can't wait to hear it tonight. So thank you guys so, so much. Thank you, audience, for being here. <clears throat> and before you forget, go check out Ellen Reed's sound installation, either now or at the intermission. Thank you so much.